To be on the road in South Africa in 2022 is to become a connoisseur of burned-out or besieged government buildings. The raging flames rose high above the rooftops of Cape Town. This is a very sad day for our democracy because Parliament is the home of our democracy. As the new year dawned on January 2nd, 2022, hungover South Africans woke up to the news that their Parliament was on fire. And then the country kept burning. The South African National Defence Force says that investigations will continue this morning to determine what could have caused the fire at the Waterkloof Air Force Base in Pretoria. Police fired a warning shot this morning to force a 36-year-old man to desist from breaking the windows of the Constitutional Court in Bramfontein with a hammer. We understand that there was another government building which came under attack. We understand there was a fire there. South African police services are conducting an investigation of arson in the case. It looks like like burning government buildings is becoming a trend in the country. The historic Komani Town Hall in the Eastern Cape has gone up in flames. This is the fourth municipal building that's been set alight within two years. Police say it's firing documents. So we just stopped for petrol at the Komani Shell and happened to see the headline from Monday, January 31, 2022 in Daily Dispatch. Yeah, I took a walk down the main street. The town hall is completely gutted. Everything inside the building was destroyed. To my eye, nothing would have survived that conflagration. Very disturbing that all four buildings uh, that have been gutted by fire in recent months contained valuable and sensitive municipal records, including records of foul play and maladministration of the highest order. Sounds familiar? Yeah, this is happening all over the country, so it's straight, straight out of the playbook if those allegations stand. While the riots of July 2021 occupy a great deal of space in our national consciousness, there's long been an epidemic of burning in this country. Important stuff is burned for a range of reasons. Labor issues, unemployment, corruption, education, electricity, housing, land, municipal services, vigilantism, xenophobia, elections, party political and political attacks, and sometimes just for the sheer fun of it. It's actually enough to make one paranoid about the connections and links and masterminds and Svengalis. The truth, though, is that it's all just pure chaos. And then the phone rings late at night. Yeah, how, how, how can I help? Perhaps clarity waits at the other end of the line? But then, this voice growls down the phone. This man calls that, an attitude of the He says... These photos look like Gordon Mantasso's lips. A, a part, who said that? Ice, ice. The author of the Okay, he said they look like Gordon. Okay, so. Okay. Now, I don't mind being criticized, Richard, okay? Inside, I'm not criticized. They reflect hatred. Okay. That's Gwede Samson Mantashe one of South Africa's most powerful politicians of the past several decades. He served for 10 years as a Secretary General of the ANC, and he is now the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy. And this is one of Mantashe's signature power moves. He calls journalists when they're either half asleep or in a rush to file before late deadline. And then he berates them. In this case, Mantashe is incensed by a satirical article that ran in the Daily Maverick. This piece compared his lips to the potholes that feature prominently in the roads of the Eastern Cape, 
on Tasha's spectacularly impoverished home province. But when the ANC's gruff Uncle Gweezy rings, there's usually something else going on. A secondary motive behind the initial parry. Now is probably a good time to revisit our seven-point democratic breakdown continuum that we introduced in episode one. As a reminder, it goes like this. Ideological contestation leads to divisions, which result in factions, which create corruption or elite capture, which leads to state capture, which atomizes into organized crime, which results in all-out gang warfare. Mantasha's story details the short leap from elite capture to organized crime, the penultimate point on that continuum. Mantasha is a keystone, but he is also the key that unlocks how postmodern democracy functions and fails. Daily Maverick presents The Highwaymen, a limited podcast series written and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal and produced with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the Foundation's views or opinions. This is Episode 6, Island of Angels. Thanks. Thanks very much. We're going to call upon the Minister, Gwede Mantashe, to come up and give us his keynote address. Give Gwede Mantashe this much He's a serial engager, even if he doesn't end up saying much of substance. You're going to see a few examples that I'm going to give you where we always pretend to be an island of angels, but drifted to poverty. We like that as a country. But although he's been one of the most prominent figures in South African palace politics for the past 15 years, few people really seem to know who Gwede Mantashe is or are even aware of his history. Not our colleague, Estelle Ellis, who reports on the Eastern Cape, Mantashe's home province. Did you know much about Gwedi? People seem to be scared of Gwedi. I don't want to talk about him. Nor opposition politician Bantu Holomisa, who has spent his entire life working in politics in the Eastern Cape. Gwedi Mantashe, I don't know him that much. Because at the time I was active in the ANC, he was more on the labor side, in the mines and so on. Not even long-term political insider and struggle stalwart Protest Madlala can say much about him. I don't know him except at a distance. I respected him as a secretary general. I used to enjoy his reports. Well, how do you feel about Gwedi Mansasha now? Minister of Energies. Ah, oh, no, he's a disaster. He's a disaster. The rare exception to this rule is author and Daily Maverick associate editor Feriel Hafiji, who's known Mantashe from his days as a labor power broker back in the early 90s. I really dig Gwede Mantashe. I've covered him as an NUM general secretary. I've covered all his years as the ANC secretary general. And I've covered him as a cabinet minister now. And why have I always appreciated him? Because Gwede is not somebody who's shy to pick up the phone and engage you and debate you into the ground. No kidding. My experience of him has been as a kind human being and a very personable person. And I have been quite alarmed to see the transmogrification of Gwede Mantash into a person who I almost don't recognize these days. Yeah, uh, that makes three of us. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Mantasha was born in a small village in the Eastern Cape called Loa Kala in a region that is famous for producing more than its fair share of ANC stalwarts. Here's Bantu Holomisa again. 
The Eastern Cape itself has always been regarded as a home for the people who led the struggle. I'm talking about from Chris Hanis, Winnie Mandela's, uh, Mr. Mandela, Sisulu's, Mbegis, all these household names. South Africa's Eastern Cape Coast is one of the most treacherous coastlines in the world. If this were a travel podcast, we'd be rhapsodizing about the diversity of the Eastern Cape's landscape, the astonishing drive from the Drakensberg down to the rivers of the Wild Coast, through what seems to be 12 different biospheres and about 15 different action man activities. Tragically, however, this is a political podcast. And the Eastern Cape is a mess. Our colleague Estelle Ellis has reported here for years, and it's never good news. A lot of things have stayed the same even though every four years they claim that they are now changing. I think first it was the home of champions, and then the Eastern Cape became the home of legends. But the point is it's still the home of extremely poor people with very little access to health care, to water, to food. Some of the poorest communities in South Africa live in the Eastern Cape, and it doesn't matter how many times the tagline changes. The most vulnerable remained vulnerable. During apartheid, two Bantustans, Siskai and Transkai, constituted the bulk of the eastern part of what is now the Eastern Cape. Following the discoveries of diamonds and gold in the latter part of the 19th century, the Ur colonizer and mining magnate Cecil John Rhodes passed the Glen Grey Act in the Cape Colony in 1894. The act assigned an area for exclusively African development, serving to enforce segregation of Africans, further disenfranchising them and controlling their economic options. The Glen Grey Act outlawed local systems of land allocation in the British-occupied territories and set up the first Cape native reserves, Siskai and Transkai, which were to become the template for the 1913 Land Act and for the resulting Bantustans, or homelands, more than 50 years later. Apartheid's economic policies split families, creating an enduring social crisis. In the drive to feed apartheid industry, the mines needed miners. The state supported this mining industry through the provision of infrastructure and by introducing and enforcing a legislative framework that ensured a cheap, racialized labor supply to the mines. In turn, the revenue from the mining industry funded apartheid society to the benefit of white South Africans. Black men left their families for months and years on end, living in squalid hostels and townships on the edges of urban areas in the north. The Golden City, South Africa's Johannesburg. 70 years have brought a small township to rank with the world's richest cities, and it's still growing fast. A center of gold mining, of industry and commerce, Johannesburg creates enormous wealth. Mining is so woven into the economic fabric of the region that it's easy to think of South Africa as one big 1.2 million square kilometer mine pit. Given the cruelty and exploitation of the South African mining system, organizing that labor, fighting for mine workers' basic human rights, became crucial to undermining apartheid. In 1941, a national union federation was formed called the Council of Non-European Trade Unions. During the Second World War, it became a collective of 119 trade unions, and by 1945, it had a combined membership of 158,000 black workers. In the same year, the African Mine Workers Union, or AMWU, was also formed. Then came one of South Africa's game-changing strikes. In 1946, 60,000 workers downed their tools. When the smoke cleared, 12 people had been killed by police. 
The unrest helped undermine trust in the then-president Jan Smuts and his union party. Two years later, the National Party won power. Apartheid became official policy and mining, especially gold mining, would go on to pay for pretty much all of it. Gwede Mantashe was one of those mine laborers who was footing the bill. I'm a coal miner. Others call me a coal fundamentalist. Actually, I spent more years mining copper than mining coal. But nobody calls me a copper fundamentalist. <laughs> if you add some months in gold, where I was fired after six months by Anglo-American incentive levels, then the period is bigger outside of coal. After joining the Christian student movement as a teenager, Mantasha began working on the mines of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg's vast gold reef. At 20 years old, he became the recreation officer at Western Deep Levels Gold Mine in Coltonville for a few months, before moving on to Prisca Copper Mine later in 1982. Millions of pounds worth of gold comes out of Joburg each year. Mines like this one at Bleivvoritzicht make South Africa one of the largest gold-producing countries in the world. In fact, two-thirds of the West's gold comes from these fields. In 1982, Mantasha joined the new National Union of Mine Workers, or NUM, the first union to sign the Freedom Charter. NUM was founded by high-end pet enthusiast Cyril Ramaphosa, who became the first general secretary. Under Ramaphosa's leadership, the membership of the NUM grew from 6,000 to 300,000. He then helped establish the Congress of South African Trade Unions, or KUSATU, in 1985. His profile grew accordingly. Ramaphosa was put in charge of coordinating the release of the Ravonia trialists, most of whom were freed in October 1989. He also oversaw the release of Nelson Mandela in February 1990. Ramaphosa was elected ANC Secretary General in 1991. He headed the ANC negotiating team with the National Party during Cadessa and the Multi-Party Negotiating Forum. He then chaired the Constitutional Assembly, which drafted the first democratic constitution. It's not too much to say that NUM made the new South Africa. Surely this was a beautiful moment for South Africa's working class as the democratic era dawned? Eh, not so much. Here's Ferial Hafaji again. In the late 80s and early 90s, the trade unions were really the key form of political organisations. And without them, the ANC wouldn't have been able to root back because it was through those branch structures which gave it uh, almost a, a natural leadership core. And there was contestation in Kosatu whether it should ally with the ANC, because there were many people who came from different political traditions. But eventually it, would de- it was decided with the SACP, because of Joe Slovo largely, that they would form this tripartite alliance. And that's given a political identity to South Africa for all of its democratic history, that Samusa, a triangle of, of power. So it's the fundamental building block to understand the ANC in power is to understand that tripartite alliance. Not all senior ANC politicians liked what those blocks were building, though. Here's former trade unionist turned policy specialist Neil Coleman. Tabambeki, I think is at the root of what unfolds over the next 26, 27 years because he regarded the internal movement and the mass forces which underpinned that as being naive, 
as being ultra-militant, as misunderstanding the international economic situation and what was possible in South Africa. He regarded the internal mass democratic movement and the sort of revolutionary situation in the country as being a threat to some type of moderate, inclusive settlement which promoted a black middle class which promoted an accord between elite black economic interests with domestic business and allowed for a reconfiguration of economic relationships in in South Africa. He deliberately fashioned a trajectory, a path, an accord with big business in South Africa, which excluded the labor movement, which excluded the mass democratic forces. Labor leaders in the new ANC dispensation were given prominent posts in government, with Mandela seeming to believe that they would balance out the more conservative forces in his cabinet, most notably Mbeki. Well, they didn't. Jay Naidu, the former Secretary-General of Kasatu, has often described this deal in no uncertain terms as a mistake. Kasatu has very serious challenges. You know, it is seen increasingly by workers as a conveyor belt of those that are in political power. You have a situation where 350,000 members of the Metal Workers Union can be expelled from an organization. That would have never happened in our time. Unsurprisingly, the global context had a massive impact on how South African history would unfold. Across Western democracies, with only a few exceptions, the rising neoliberal order signaled an end to the class war detente that had uplifted the Western working class. Without the specter of communism, there was no longer any need to pander to labor. Union membership began to plummet, as did the security of working-class jobs. For a decade at least before the labor-busting tenures of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, there was a resumption of unrelenting anti-union propaganda campaigns. And by the 1990s, that propaganda had basically become the global consensus that I have the same contempt for his socialist policies as the people of East Europe who have experienced it have it for that. I think I must have hit the right nail on the head when I pointed out that they'd rather have the poor poorer. You do not create wealth and opportunity that way. You do not create a property-owning democracy that way. Compounding matters, in South Africa, as elsewhere, Some unions became rent-seeking syndicates in their own right, bleeding sectors like education and the civil service dry. Here's Heinrich Böhmke, the former trade unionist and the current head of the Specialized Skills Institute of South Africa. In the 70s and the 80s and early 90s, you had a bunch of true believers for whom trade unionism was a noble task that they performed nobly. And there were real advances that were made. There are a number of things, however, that have broken that open. Public sector unions have their own logic. They have to stay close to the government in obsequious ways, but also in a sort of racketeering way. They have to constantly flex their muscles in certain ways. And when they no longer have a muscle to flex, they then make all these side deals. And those side deals start with investment companies that are a thing. It's so easy for questions like this to be labeled as right-wing or conservative or union bashing. And a lot of people in the sort of broader left and academic sphere have for years and years paid obeisance to these ideas as if, you know, labor and labor aristocracy, all these words are terrible. They're Thatcherite words. They shouldn't be mentioned. 
but we all understand deep down that they are true. The co-opting of labor into the ANC was part of a global tragedy, not just because it meant the end of a coherent left in Africa's most sophisticated economy, but because a number of its leaders would function as double agents, gutting out Labour's progressive power while going on to assist Mbeki in shaping a harder-edged conservative political programme. And Mantashe was very much among them. And of course what happened is now on record is that you saw a deterioration of uh, the conditions of the vast majority of the South African population the notion of a prosperous black middle class that would filter down to ordinary people was a chimera, never materialized, and instead led to a corrupt elite, a double corrupt elite. The one was the BE elite, and the other was the elite which was feeding off the trough of state tenders, of various state institutions, of state-owned enterprises, etc., etc. About that elite... Mantashe's first stint in government began when he was elected a councillor in Ikuruleni municipality. He remained active in the union movement, but then he was appointed to the board of the listed company Samancor, a massive chrome and ore smelter, in 1995. Samancor Chrome is the largest diversified chrome mining company in the world in terms of our resource base. He was the first union boss to be appointed to a board position in South Africa, rocketing up the ranks in NUM as well as the SACP. Here's Ferial Hafaji again, describing business's logic behind these appointments. It was all part of the macro picture. Remember where the world was at this time? The greatest fear was that the ANC would impose a a collectivist economy, a communist economy, nationalise private property and also nationalise the mines. So if you wanted labour peace and if you wanted a less adversarial relationship, you had to either co-govern, co-determine or otherwise co-opt labor. And so they began those first experiments of helping start the NUM's investment company, helping to capitalize it, not only with the pension fund, but also through capital injections, and then pulling people like Wedi Mantashi onto boards as worker voices right at the top of boards. That's like a German model of uh, running business. Perhaps inevitably, this created a revolving door between labor, business and government, a squishy ideological netherworld that would lead to immense compromise, mostly for the progressive left. By the zeros, the ANC, much like the universe, was in a state of constant expansion. Its patronage networks grew and deepened. It stretched across the entire South African state. As an institution of democracy, which is to say a political party, it constantly needed money to feed its election machinery. By 2007, Matasha was elected the chairperson of the South African Communist Party. He was also appointed to a job at the Development Bank of Southern Africa around the same time. The latter was a font of cash washed mainly into mining companies that were thankful to the ANC for their continued good stewardship of the new South Africa. Matasha was becoming a money gyre, a swirling hyperactive conduit flushing cash from grateful corporate donors and even more grateful recipients of the development bank, straight back into the hungry movement. At the center of this was Gwede Mantashe. But was he a commie? A suit? A shop steward? None of these distinctions had any meaning anymore. In the journey from ideological contestation to division to factionalism and then to entrenched corruption or elite capture, the squishy netherworld had produced the perfect fully automated replicant. 
Guede Mantashe, the company man, was doing ANC company business, working every angle in service of the organization. Next, we show how this congealed into a program of advanced state capture and into a bloodier, noisier, less artful adaptation of The Godfather. And the same guns. Finance is a gun. Politics is knowing when to pull the trigger. The Highwayman is written, produced and directed by Richard Poplack and Diana Neal, with editing and sound design by Bernard Kutzer, Diana Neal and Tevya Turok-Shapiro. The original soundtrack is written by Bernard Kutzer and Janis van der Merwe. Our deputy editor is Gillian Green. Our project manager is Catherine Kutzer. And our marketing lead is Sarah Kortman. Fact-checking and editorial oversight by Sasha Whale-Smith, with transcriptions provided by Gloria Cooper. Additional voiceover by Ayanda Charlie. Our editor-in-chief is Branko Brickich, and our executive producer is Silly Gerlambus. Production of The Highwaymen was made possible with support from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation. The content may not necessarily reflect the foundation's views or opinions. For additional archive and music credits, please visit Daily Maverick. New episodes of The Highwaymen drop weekly on IONO, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen to them on the Daily Maverick website. If you found this installment interesting, illuminating, or perhaps even a little life-changing, please consider leaving a review or sharing on social media.